Hello, this is Black Country Blokes Tune the Fat. Listen, listen, listen. I've been hearing a lot lately about men don't talk. But in my experience, men do talk, just people aren't listening. So it's going to be me and a group of blokes discussing our struggles and victories through life. Warning, there may be some bad language, so apologies to all the moms, especially on my own. Let's get going. Listen, listen, listen. I've been yeah. It's the Black Country Blokes tuning the fat here with me, Kev Dillon, Lee Cabin, and our very special guests today are John Reed and Ed Flanagan. Flanagan. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ed, I'm terrible with names. Now we had That's all right, mate. We had, John on our radio. <laughs> <laughs> we had Joe uh, John on our radio show on Black Country Extra the other week. And John goes in prisons talking about poetry and entertaining some of the prisoners. And Ed's got the other side of the coin. He was an offender and an addict, and now he's turned his life around through art and teaching people, you know, what he did and the mistakes he's necessarily made, but the differences he is now doing. So, both of you, thank you ever so much for coming on. Ed, would you like to go into a bit of your story first? Um, yeah, my name's Eddie. I'm 63. Up to the age of 50, I was involved in criminality. I had quite a trauma- traumatic childhood. And I turned to drugs and booze, uh, 14, 15, and I went down that path, made some really bad decisions, uh, ended up serving 20 years in total within the prison systems. Uh, 15 years ago, I changed my life around. I'm an artist. I now make short animations and videos to encourage, educate, and hopefully to inspire people to maybe take on some of the issues around the criminality. Well, funny enough, when John was on our show, we were talking about the in and out system of going in and out of prison. And so many of our listeners will identify with, especially in your teens, getting into drinking drugs. I mean, Blumenick, it's uh, what a lot of us have done, you know, falling into that cycle. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that habit, it, it's so difficult to get out of it. Oh, and by the way, guys, we are now going live on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. So if anyone has got any comments, even if it's just a, an Abinia or hello, please write in and we'll read them out. So please write in the conversations because without you, there'd be no conversation. What did we know, John? We were talking about how many people go into prison. Some people have just done a simple mistake. Before you know it, they, they go in on a mistake and then they get into a life of crime. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed. Good evening, guys. Um only last week, I was in a prison one day last week. I won't name the prison, but one of the officers said to me, well, of course, we're coming up to the busy time of the year. And I looked at him a bit strange, wondered why. And he said, oh, yes, he said, we've got our regulars who live on the street all summer. But for the winter period, they want to be in the warm and they want to be fed. So they go and commit a little crime. And hey, presto, the judge does the kindest thing and sends them into us for six months. And they become prison residents. Now, I, I tell you, it beggars belief, doesn't it? For me, in the world that I come from, that I've lived, and not that I'm any God by any stretch of the imagination, but to to have that as a life plan, that in the winter months you're going to be in prison because it's warmer, <laughs> I find it quite difficult to understand, really. But there you go. Well, isn't it funny, you know, when COVID first hit, and it was amazing how kind Great Britain was because we looked after all of our homeless we put people in hotels and we thought it was the plague. And then, funny enough, they're all back out there now. And if you are living on yeah, the streets, yeah. it does make a bit of common sense, doesn't it? Why not go and do some petty crime and be warm, showered and fed in those cold wintery months? Is that your kind of life story, Ed? Is that what you used to do? Um, no, not really. I mean, I made a conscious decision when I was about 15 or 16. Uh, I didn't really feel part of society. Um, at school, I was marginalised because I was dyslexic, so they treat me like I was a bit thick. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I'd been dealing with abuse as a child. I never told anybody. So 
I, I, I didn't really, I went into criminality as somewhere to vent my anger. I, I didn't feel, feel I belonged to society. Um, within the criminal fraternity, I, I did feel part of that. And I made a conscious decision to be a criminal. But the, 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 the main factor for me was I had to feed my habit. Because by 17, I was drinking heavily and doing drugs. So I had to pay for that lifestyle. And I, I made a choice because society didn't seem to care about, about me. I didn't really care about society. So I went off grid, really, and survived within the criminal fraternity. And if, so how many people I know who have gone through abuse, in no matter what kind of abuse it was, neglect, sexual, physical, whatever it is, and then they do mm. shut off and then they get into um, distractions as in crime because when you're doing crime, you're getting money, you are someone, and then we blank out the force with drinking drugs. Yeah, I mean, and when I started to go wrong, as I say, around about 15, uh, that was in the early 70s. It's, it was a different world then. Um, there was a lot of institutionalised racism, which everyone's aware of. But there was also a system where paedophiles could operate with impunity, basically, in them days. Uh, and I'm not unusual. There's lots of people who took the routes that I did. Out of not, not knowing how to deal with pain as a child, uh, I didn't tell anyone about my abuse. Uh, the dyslexia wasn't diagnosed in those days. So it was quite easily, really, for me to feel apart from everything. And in the criminal world, I felt part of something. I, and I want to stick my fingers up, really, as well. I was an angry young man. I had all, all these issues going on. I didn't know how to deal with them. And drinking drugs just exacerbated my behaviour from that point. I think I can I think add in here, Ed. You know, as I understand it, you were growing up in Kilburn in London. Yeah, I worked in Kilburn for a couple of years in the early 70s. And true to say, I don't mean to be disparaging to the to the Irish community at all, but there was always reckoned to be um, a, a strong IRA tendency. There were people there that had got sympathy towards what was going on in Ireland at the time. And you, you, you would therefore be growing up in an environment that uh, was extreme, to say the least. Yeah, well, with a surname like Flanagan, uh, yeah, I, 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 I felt the prejudice in those days towards the Irish community. But that just gave me even more reason to be a rebel, to be quite honest. Uh, yeah. If I'd, if I'd have grown up in Ireland, I probably would have become a political animal as a way of disappearing into something. I didn't. I grew up in England, even though I was born in Ireland. My parents came over here when I was three. So, uh, yeah. And I think angry young men will find a, a, a venue. And uh, how, much, how much blame do you put Ed on the lack of a father figure? Uh, with hindsight, a great deal. Yeah, my father was wasn't present. He was an alcoholic. Um, the person that abused me was like the surrogate father. So I, yeah, I, I didn't trust adults. I didn't trust society. Uh, I didn't trust anybody really. By the time I got to drinking at fifteen, I was like a little time bomb. I mean, like you say, you spent um, 20 years in and out of prison. And what yeah. was the epiphany to turn turn the cycle around? Um, education. In my 30s, a teacher in prison said, oh, I think you might be dyslexic because I, 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 I used to do lots of art and stuff. I was a portrait artist, so I, I could earn an income in prison. Uh, and I did, did pictures for uh, staff and inmates alike. And that gave me some sort of like independence in there. So art was always something I used to express myself, but I only ever did it when I was in prison. Cause when I wasn't in prison, I was, I was being hedonistic. Uh, I only ever did create things when I was in prison. So over a 20 year period as a boy and a man, I started off with three months DC, which is descent, detention center. They banned it because it was so brutal. And then after that was Ballstool, six months, two years. Then at 19, I got four years YP and then 15 years in adult sentences. So once you're in the system and you're tagged as part of the, the problem, 
that that's it. Everybody just treats you like a ship, basically. Uh, and you can't see a way out. I never saw a way out. Uh, it was only when my dyslexia was diagnosed, I did education, social sciences, understood my condition. And through education, I could see why I turned out like I did. But that was a long journey. That, that was like a 20-year period where I had to get that education and psychology and sociology and all it gave me all the answers I needed. So by the time I, when I did decide I wanted to change, uh, I was trying to change for 20 years unsuccessfully because of my addiction. I'm sober 11 years now. Uh, I walked away from that life 15 years ago. It took me four, I've been trying for about 20 years to get and stay sober. I've done about 20 rehabs and everything sort of like the stars lined up when I was uh, 49 and I had the tools and I then started to, I, I, the first person I heard about was Chris Lambriano. He was involved with the, uh, with the Cray brothers and the Jack, Jack the Hat Mac Vitty killings. Um, he was one of the brothers that was present when Jack the Hat was killed and him and his brother received 15 years recommendations. Uh, Chris, early on in his sentence, found religion uh, and very early on in his sentence and coming from the background. And I admired the fact that this guy who was steeped in crime found something. It was religion in this case. I'm not a religious person. But I admired what that must have taken for that man's journey to go from being in mm -hmm. the first few years of a life sentence as, as a Cray associate and then to turn around to everyone and say, right, I found God and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And he did that and he's never faltered. Now, my admiration is for what that man had to go through to get to where he is. And as soon as he left prison, he worked for the lay community. And, and that's people with rehabs. He goes into prisons. He meets people on, at the gate as they get out and takes them to the rehab to make sure they get there. I also take people to rehabs. So he became a bit of a role model, role model for me when I read his book. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Now, religion wasn't the outlet for me. Art was my saviour. But everyone's got a different saviour. Yeah. But isn't it funny, like, how many people I know who suffer with drug addiction, alcoholism, whatever their voice, and we will lock someone up in a prison around criminals when that person has got an addiction. Yes, it might be stealing, they might be doing whatever, but it is to fund their addiction. And I think, why are we putting them in there where we're teaching someone with an addiction to become a criminal when the best place is through rehab and through therapy because if we just keep putting them in there and inside as we all know you can get drugs and you can get that way yeah and we teach them how to be a criminal instead of treating them for actually being poorly did you see that yourself yeah well i i believe if, if you depersonalize somebody you can treat them how you want uh, we saw it in germany with the jews we saw it with racism in this country uh and once you're in the system, you're tagged as being part of the problem. And society wipes its hands of you. And, and, and rightly so, because when you think the worst 1% of the population, stick them in a place with high walls, forget about them, they've done wrong. But then people are released. Yeah. They're released back into society. And it's that small 1% of the hardcore people who come out and probably commit 80% of the criminal activity going on in society. So it's a false economy. If we put funds into that 1% to try and turn them around so they're not released onto society and perpetuate the same life that they've had for their kids. Because if you grow up in, I mean, I grew up in a very working class area. Some of our estates are ghettos, mm. the ghettos. And we put everybody in the same place and then we wonder why the children turn out wrong because they're running around with buckets of re weed when they're 12 because that's normal in the council estate now mm -hmm. you know what i mean um so we have to tackle the problem and uh, i think part of it is role models going in and um, maybe showing that, that there is a way out i think that's definitely right bro i also i also think you've got to They've got to have a purpose when they come out of there. So, like you said, uh, yeah. I, I actually listened to a podcast with with Chris on there, and I think it might have been James English, but I might be wrong because I listened to a few, and it's actually yeah, yeah. it's a fascinating story. Um, 
but you, he he found his purpose in life. He found what he wanted to do, what he where he wanted to be. And the same with yourself. You found art. You found you you, you enjoyed doing art. So it gives you another direction. It's my therapy. And, it's my therapy. All that stuff I used to bottle up that I drank on and I used on and and that kept me in anger. Uh, uh, I now release that stuff. I no longer build stuff up. Uh, but that's a lesson I've learned. I'm 63 now, so that's with hindsight. But that, they are transferable. That, that some of the, the signposts in my life can be used by other people to start to, to alter their behaviour. Well, what we've said on this show, and we say it all the time, you've got to find your medicine. That can be therapy, that can be sport, that can be art, that can be religion. Yep. But you've got to find what makes Kevin Dillon a better man. And once you've found yeah. it, you've got to hang on to it with dear life. And once it stops working, find something else. But how many of us, we often fall back onto the poison we've always used, the drink, the drugs, the gambling, the self-harm, the eating addiction, whatever it is, instead of finding something. Because if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And sometimes we get used to suffering, don't we? And we yeah. almost believe that we should suffer for the things that we've done. Instead of almost forgiving ourselves, and giving ourselves a way out of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Self-forgiveness a... is the hardest thing, yeah. We've had a couple of comments in, so uh, I'll just bring this one up here. So Charlene Plant says, uh, I think this is talking to, to about your uh, the dys dyslexia in school. Easy for you to say. I know, yeah. He says, what a shame <laughs> it took so... <laughs> it, <laughs> what a shame it took so long to be taught the tools. I worry that not much has changed and the children are still not taught early enough. I think that is definitely right. That, you know, it's, yeah. yeah it's we've we've right. got better, well. we've got better at spotting it, but how many people with everything fall through the cracks? And it's the same if you yeah. can pick up autism, Asperger's, dyslexia, all these things. Yeah, it's all part of the spectrum now. One of the lucky ones to be picked up. And it, not only you'd be picked up, but then to have good teachers and people to guide you with it, you've got a, a much higher chance of succeeding and dealing with it. But how many people we all know, it, it has just been brushed under the carpet. You are just that thick or that naughty kid at the back of the classroom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I work with this British Dyslexia Institute. And... Uh, I, I, I've done stuff for them because I think it's very important because dyslexia, if not recognised, if it marginalises you to the point that you don't want to go to school anymore, then that's a massive thing. But when you just say, oh, he's dyslexic, it, it's, a, it's an off-the-cuff thing. But being dyslexic, uh, in my case, led to me being marginalised and not feeling part of things. Now, that's true for every dyslexic child. 12% of our population are dyslexic. About 4% of them have been diagnosed with it. Once it's diagnosed, it's like anything. I mean, because I'm hyper uh, and I have other traits that are on the autism spectrum. Like, for instance, I know this is going to sound weird, but if I'm looking at a written word, I will know automatically I have to count how many straight lines are in that word. I know it sounds weird. And I, I, I never, ever told anybody that. And then I saw a video and somebody spoke about it. I thought, oh, I do that. And then mm. it led me to then learn that the other thing, dyslexia, whatever it is, OCD, DOH, whatever name they, they, they give to a kid that's struggling. Uh, yeah, it can be very important, even though it seems very small, just to say, oh, dyslexia can cause that. But don't you find a lot of words, I'm going to make two points, and I had so many words like... Mm. Um, Oh, I've got a migraine. Oh, I've got OCD. And no, you haven't got a migraine, you've got a headache, or you haven't got OCD, <laughs> you're like, you're yeah. flat being tidy. But we we throw these words around, and we throw them around, yeah. and then we lose the meaning. And then the poor buggers who actually do suffer from it, it's just, oh, is it, he's, he's got a bit of that dyslexia, you know? Go, well, hang on. It's not just a bit of that bloody dyslexia. Mm. It's, I suffer with dyslexia. I am dyslexic. Yeah. But we throw these words around and then they lose the meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important that, 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 that it is publicised more. And because a diagnosis can make a huge difference. 
as I said, I was 30 when I was diagnosed. And from that diagnosis, I went on to go into it because I was always avoided education because I stopped going to school. I knew I was more intelligent than most of the people I was around. I know that sounds arrogant, but I knew it wasn't because I was thick that I was struggling with this stuff. I don't know why I knew that, but I did. But a lot of the people with dyslexia or whatever the condition is, you then excel in other areas. Dyslexics are very, very creative. I wouldn't swap. I wouldn't change my dyslexia for anything, because arts, arts, really my outlet. It's my therapy, and I wouldn't be the artist I am if I was if I weren't dyslexic. My brain's wise. In it for what yeah. you said there, Nola, because as a child, all you want to be is normal. You want to be the same yeah. as everyone else in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the worst thing, and I always say, the best friend of any mental health is loneliness. And whether you're dyslexic, you're gay, you're whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. When you feel like you are the only person, you forget this. At that time, you don't realize there's another billion people on this planet who've got exactly what you have. At that time, you feel alone. And when you feel alone, you feel ashamed because you don't want to say, I came to many lines in the word the or squirrel. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. You live with that because you believe if I say it, I am a weirdo. And that's not the yeah. case, is it? Well, I am weirdo, but uh, that's, that's, never, that's never issue. <laughs> you fit in well. <laughs> I, I, I just think if you understand something, then you can do something about it. Recognition is the first sign of change. Um, we can't change something unless we recognise it. And sometimes it needs other people to recognise that. And I, I, I've been very fortunate. Uh, the stuff I do now keeps me sober. My, my, my friendship with John, our collaborations, coming on this thing. All this makes me look at issues that I've resolved by this stage of my life. But I, I went and I did counselling. When I first got sober, I went to the rooms. I did grief counselling. All the stuff I never did up to the point of 50, 49, I just stayed with the anger. I then had to uh, then resolve those issues. And uh, and that is a process, not an event. But the help's out there, but only if somebody points it out to you. I think it's also, um, Ed, that the the treatment or the bad treatment is also is, is almost worse than actually having the dys dyslexia, you know, ha having people cast you off and do all those things to you, you know, you can kind of deal with the dyslexia. If you know you've got it, you can put things in place, but actually having people marginalize you and treat you different made it worse, not the actual condition. Yeah. Especially as a child, as I say, in your formative years, around the, the formative years, sort of like say between nine and 15, uh, that's because that's there's big transition there. If, if that part of your life is affected by trauma, that trauma will come out one way or the other. Now, not everyone becomes an addict. Not everyone becomes a thief. Some people, they, they come comes out in other areas. But I realise a lot of the stuff I did in order to get and stay sober, I worked the 12 steps. And it's a philosophy. And you work through those 12 steps. And even for anybody who hasn't got an addiction but is just unhappy with their life, if they take on the 12-step programme for AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, They've all got the same 12 steps, and it's an introspective look at yourself, but it's in a chronological order so you can work through it. And in order to do that, you really have to look at yourself. And when I went to the rooms, you then find a sponsor. You work the steps. It's called working the steps. Step one, my life had become unmanageable, and I was powerless over my addiction. I mean, step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself. They, 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 it's just like sayings, but... If you look in depth at those particular issues, like one of the steps is make amends where it's possible, but not if it's harmful to yourself or the other people. So you, you, you have to look at some really deep stuff about yourself. And I think through that comes knowledge. So anyone who's struggling, 12-step programs. Thank you for that advice. Thank you. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that and, and take a look at it. We've had a few, haven't we, on who's had conditions and actually used that 12 set. Right? I know Andy Plant has used it um, in his recovery and there's a few others. But we've actually had a question um, from Andrew Mullaney. Oh, how, how you doing, doing Andy? Andy? Oh, yeah, we know Andrew. We love Andrew. <laughs> I think we all know Andrew now. He knows everyone, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's cool. He's cool. Andy. Like Very. 
Mary. Um, so, we, so he's asked, can John and Eddie give their thoughts to the campaign to ban the box, the campaign where the box on the job application asks you to declare previous convictions? Yeah, shall I go, go first? Oh, <laughs> yes, I don't mind. Um, I, I think this campaign is absolutely wonderful because I think actually having that box on the job application form is going against people's human rights. You know, it, it's reality that, that they should be able to offer you a job if you've got your life in order at that time. So being asked if you ever committed a crime, you know, years ago or whatever, I mean, goodness me, it's a stupid question, isn't it? Um, you've got people coming out of prison today that ha have to go in to sign on for a job and they tick the box to say they've just come out. And what happens then? There are so many people looking for work that they're automatically stood aside. So what chance... It's a criminal offence not to tick it. If you've got a yeah. conviction and you don't tick that box, it's a criminal offence. So, so I believe not, the box they, they should not be there. <laughs> no, of course not. I don't think uh, the box should be there. I think that people can and do come out of prison as different people, and in many cases, better people, that the experiences they've had inside prison have put them in a better position to deal with their life than they were before. So I think the campaign to ban the box is really sound and it should be, um, it should not be on an application form. In other words, to, to cover what you're saying, Ed, it, I, I know that they have to tick the box if they've got a thing, but it shouldn't be there in the first place. I think you should, funny enough. <laughs> Do you? I know you did expect me to say, no, I don't think you should. I think you should tick a, tick a box because I think, one, if, you, if you're going to cheat anyway, you're just going to tick the box, you know what I mean? So it, it, it's a bit of a, a false, false question. But uh, no, I, I think if people have been in trouble, it's easier for me to say because I talk about my past now. It's part of my story. It's part, part of my journey. So it's easy for me within my situation to say, yeah, I've got no issues with it. But if you're trying to walk away from that life, it, yeah, it can be very, very problematic. And I understand why people tick it when they shouldn't. But that's that's why I love this show, you know, because we've had someone who's been in the system, we've had someone who works in there, and we've got we've given two perfectly perfect answers, yes and no. And no one's got a fall eight about it, have we? But don't you think in the world today, yes, no. Wow, you bastard. I disagree. <laughs> the world is about opinions and We've yep. all got the right for an opinion, and that's what they are, is opinion. It isn't the word of God himself or whatever it is. It is an opinion. And I, I think by listening to that, because I haven't even heard about this box idea, and in some ways I believe that the box is a good idea because if the employer give him the chance to give him or her the chance or not the chance, and I think mm -hmm. some crimes should be, there should be a box if it has been a, a sexual offence. Or, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, if definitely. you've, if yeah. you've hurt, hurt or harmed a child, or, you know, yeah. there's certain things. Enhanced, are, are, yeah, enhanced disclosures, they're called. Um, and if you've got anything of a sexual nature or of arson, you can't work with children or lots of other communities. I haven't got any of that on my record, so it, it doesn't affect me. But the irony is, if you've been inside for murder, you can come out and you can work with children. If you've yeah. been inside for arson, you can't come out and work with children. Um, so yeah, swings and roundabouts, yeah, and isn't it? Yeah, but that and these things like I've known people probably like yourself, and me and John were talking about this on the radio. And stay away, stay away from drugs, stay away from everything, and they'll let you out with basically 20 pounds. Is it 75 pounds now? And saying, all right, yeah, don't go back. You can't right. stay away from drugs in prison, you can't stay away from them, they're endemic. They're endemic. So we, put, so we put drug addicts in a drug den and we wonder why they don't get off drugs. Mm -hmm. Shall so, so I tell you something? In the 70s, up until the 70s, if you smoked cannabis in, in, in prison uh, and you were caught, you, you, you would lose remission in those days. So... Everybody smoked cannabis. There, there wasn't any, a lot of heroin. There was hardly any heroin imprisoned in the 70s, early 70s, believe it or not. But then they brought in a, what they called a urine test. 
So that meant that any inmate at any time could be asked to give a, a urine sample. If in that urine sample they found drugs, i.e. cannabis, then you would lose remission. Now, cannabis stayed in your system for 28 days. At the same time, you will get exactly the same for heroin, but it would only stay in your system for two days. So people thought, right, wait there, if I smoke cannabis for 28 days, I can lose remission. If I take heroin and drink lots of water in two days' time, I'll pass the test. And then as soon as they brought that in and people started losing remission, people started to use heroin and it became part of the prison scene. That's how initially heroin became to be used rather than cannabis because of the, the urine samples. And our prison systems have gone downhill ever since. Uh, and you, <laughs> that's quite crazy. You, you had a thought someone yeah. who was bringing those tests in would know that yeah. kind of information and realize we told them. We told the damage them. We but uh, it was it. And then sort of like people then thought, well, I'm better off using heroin. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And we saw a lot with the legal highs when Spice and uh, yep. MCAT come in. There's a massive influx with that. And uh, Yeah, you can't test for it, you see. You can't test for it. That, that, that's why people use it now. If you're in there now and you take Spice or or one of the, the, the one of that family, um, then even if you're tested, it won't show up. So that, that's why you can't lose remission, and that's why spice has become so popular. One, it's cheap. Two, it lasts all day. And three, you can't be tested for it, whereas the other it, drugs you can't be tested for. At the end of the day. And you are, and you are tested. You are tested on a semi-regular basis. At the end of the day, we've lost the war on drugs, haven't we? And yeah. yeah. Well, we're turning we, out we, addicts. We're turning out addicts. You don't even need money in prison now. If I go into prison today... I go on the wing tonight, I get through, I go through court, I get there in the evening, I get on the wing. If I go up to a cleaner, I say, who's got any gear? And I go, rah, rah, rah. They, you'll use their phone to phone your people. Your people will pay money into an account, and then five minutes later, once they get a ping, it's in the account, they'll give you the heroin or, the, or whatever it is you need there. So that's how easy it is in prison. Within an hour, I, I will be thrown out of my head. Can I, I can, ask you, can I ask you both, do you think we ought to legalise all drugs? Uh, yeah, definitely. Without a shadow of a doubt, like Portugal, it's the only way, but unfortunately, with so old-fashioned and knee-jerk reactions, I fear it will never happen. Portugal did it 11 years ago, transformed their society. Addicts were not treated as criminals, they were treated as health issues. And therefore, the addicts could go and get their drug of choice, because you're always going to have addicts. But it was under controlled conditions, and the government, it cost them about 90p for a gram of heroin. Uh, and when you think how much money you have to put in to keep in a heroin addict, either in prison or whatever, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Portugal, 11 years ago, they, they de decriminalised addicts and the drug scene, and the government took control of all drugs, so there was purity there. You could go to a, a recognised centre. And so people were not shoplifting and doing burglaries. They took it as a health issue, not as a crime issue. And doesn't that make sense? And I, I often laugh yeah. at that. Yeah, it's, trans it's transformed their country and their society. Because I often say, like, if heroin was legalised, you wouldn't go no. to your supermarkets after some hobnobs and go, oh, bloody hell, heroin's <laughs> on special, we'll get some. Because yeah. <laughs> either you do drugs or you don't do drugs. So mm. let's keep it as clean, as pure for the people. Let's get it so they can yep. get it on prescription, so they haven't got to go robbing or selling their bodies yep. or then yep. you don't have the little gangbangers who are shooting someone on the high street and mugging people. Yep. We would clean up the neighbourhoods. We'd get the drugs, the clean drugs into the people without the crime, without the export, without this, without the, the postcode lottery. Yep. It, it makes that much sense to do it. You just wonder... <laughs> Why it hasn't happened? Well, for me, it's, it's just a fundamental it, shift in thinking as a society. We, we, I think we, all, we, we, sorry, Ed. I think it's also down to money. There's a lot of people making money off. Yeah. Off. Pharmaceuticals, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you see, America's a big a big thing. They meant they've they've spent on the war on drugs, and the people making money from the war on drugs is absolutely mm. crazy. You know, it's absolutely madness. Well, so take it, alcohol. It's, it's kind of like the homeless situation. The amount of money that's mm. ploughed into 
helping people who are homeless. We could probably buy them all houses and sort it out. But there's too many people yeah. making money off it for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's, a sad, it's a sad state of affairs. And and to be honest, I perfectly understand why the, the public want criminals to be punished. And then you hear all these stories about they've got TVs, they've got all this stuff. If you're in prison now, you have to survive it. You have to survive it. If you stay away from the drugs, if you stay away from the gangs, if you manage to do all that and then you come out and you're released with, I think you said earlier, £75. But it's not only that, that's £75. The first thing you have to do when you're released from prison, just say you're released on a Friday, everything's shut on the weekend. You're released in the morning with £75. You have to make your way straight to the probation department in whatever area you're going to be residing, present yourself at probation, and then you'll go to find accommodation. There is no accommodation. So that first day, that £75, go see the probation, come out. That's half the day gone. Where, where's the person going to go? The, the, there's no accommodation for people, especially criminals. There's enough people on, on, on the housing list as it is for people that, that, that need accommodation. So we don't view it as necessary. Uh, and why should they get special treatment? They've just come out of prison. Because if you don't, they're going to be a menace within our society. That's why. And we depersonalise people. That's somebody's son. That's somebody's daughter. It doesn't matter what age they are. If you see somebody in the street, they haven't made a conscious choice for their life to go down the drain and end up on the street. It's That's somebody's son. That's somebody's daughter. Yet we depersonalise them and we treat them like shit and we walk past them. How so, dare they what? beg of me? If you could change, and I'll ask this both both to you, I'll ask John first, then I'll okay. ask Ed, how would you structure prison? Because we need a prison in some sense, don't we? I go oh, yeah. do something yeah. heinous. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, you know what I mean? And I can't just be living. I give Lee a lamp and I set his dog on fire. He don't want me living next door. I've, they've got to put me somewhere. So what would you structure prison like, John? Well, <laughs> how long have you got? You know, I could talk for a week on this topic, so I won't, I won't bore you and talk about all of it. But let, let's just take one step back and look at the effect that drugs have on people, residents of any prison. You know, Ed has given a very colourful description of what goes on, and I'm sure he's absolutely correct. But the starting point for me is the simple question, why should it be that there are drugs in prison? Why should that be? If I wanted to get on an aeroplane and fly to a foreign country, it would be very difficult of me to take some drugs with me for use when I got there. And if we treated prisons like an airliner, then that would be the same. Now, there's only two ways that drugs are going to get into prison because they can't be made in prison themselves, can they? There's only two ways they're going to get in. Either a resident brings it in with them when they come from court or the prison officer is going to take it in. Now, if a, if a resident's going to take it in with him, that's going to take a bit of doing, really. But he can do it and, and plenty do. But a far easier route is a prison officer. So why don't we, here's a suggestion, why don't we put every person entering a prison in a situation where they go through the same protocol mm -hmm. as you would get on an aeroplane? In other words, we have X-ray devices. Now, I go into very many prisons around the country, mainly in the Midlands, but I've done quite a few in South Wales and around the area. And sometimes I take a trolley, and on the trolley I've got a lot of equipment that I need to do what I want to do. So they've always got a list of what I'm taking in uh, that I send to them a week or so before. Some of them take everything out the trolley, put it through an X-ray machine, take it out the other end, then they give me a body search, and then only then am I allowed into the prison. Other times, oh, hello, John, you've been before. Yeah, we know you, son. In you come. And in you go. And, of course, I'd like to think myself as honest Joe. I've never taken drugs into prison. Never will. So if we were to stop taking drugs, if it were possible to stop taking drugs into prison, that would completely change the, the game, wouldn't it? Because um, you wouldn't get people uh, running up debts in prison as Ed described, how you pay for them. You wouldn't get people on um, synthetic drugs. 
that are simply falling about and collapsing in a heap and some are dying, you would save an awful lot of money. Not so many people would go into prison out again, into prison out again. It would re revolutionise what we've got. So the number one change I would make in the prison system is I would do something serious about drugs getting in and out. And at the moment, there are prisons where it is serious, but a lot of them, it's not. And you can get drugs in easily enough. The second thing I would do is I would, would never send somebody to prison for less than a, a minimum period of one year and probably two. So if I commit a crime that warrants my going to prison today and they're going to sentence me to six months, say, I'm going to actually go in for three months. And this is way more worse for a woman than it ever is for a man. If I were going in for that kind of sentence, instead of going into prison, I would have people on the outside looking after me. In theory, a bit like the probation service. But I would take youngsters particularly and give them some education, some training. I'd give them some help as to how to avoid doing what they do. There would be a penance to pay. Of course there would. You know, if a young lad broke into my house and, and stole a television, I wouldn't be impressed. But is it worth locking him up for? I don't think so. And once you've got the prison population down to where it was years ago, uh, and there's another question. When you talk about the 70s, Ed, how many people would have been in prison in 1970? And how many people are in prison today? You know, judges have been told to sentence people. Indeed, it's a political thing, isn't it? We get a Tory party at the moment is saying, we're going to build new prisons and we're going to give longer sentences. Now, out of the 80,000 or so that are in prison tonight, there are probably less than 100 of them that are never going to come out. So if I, for example, uh, am involved in a road accident, I get done for manslaughter, I get sentenced to 10 years. I didn't intend to do it. It's just something that happened. So I go and serve me 10 years and out I come. Now, unless they've done some work with me to overcome the problem of why I did that in the first place, there's every chance I'll go and do it again. If, on the other hand, they extend the sentence to 15 years or 20 years or 25 years, whatever they extend it to, I'm still going to come out one day. And unless they've helped me through my sentence with education and training or whatever comes along, um, then I'm going to come out the same person at least perhaps worse than what I was when I went in. So this whole topic of reforming prisons is really based as much as anything on political will. Is there a will for the government of the day, Tory as it is at the moment, or has been Labour? They're all tied with the same brush in many uh, respects. Is it the will of the government today to do something about prisons, or are they just going to chuck a load of money at it and say, yeah, carry on, carry on, and... Uh, We'll stay the way we are. Just bang them up for longer. That's well, my. They will bit. bang them up for longer. They will give them less funds. It wouldn't change. Wouldn't change a thing. And unfortunately, what a lot of people don't realise, there's a lot of money to be made in prison. Right. Putting my criminal head on. If I go down to the market tomorrow, and I buy some snide two ounce pouches of say Golden Virginia at. Five pounds for 50 grams of tobacco. Yeah, it's snide tobacco. In prison, that five pound pouch of tobacco is worth 250 quid because you can't smoke in prison now. Do the same with drugs. Something outside that's worth, say, a 50 pounds worth of heroin outside is worth a hell of a lot more in prison. John's getting ideas now. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots of money parts I mean, in hand. Think about that, like non-smoking. I mean, non-smoking <laughs> tobacco in prison. And I know people say, "Well, if I'm not allowed to bloody smoke in the cinema, why should them bloody cons be able to?" But really, a bit of tobacco ain't the end of the world, is it? It kept the lid on things to an extent. It was because. Uh, yeah, because a vast majority of people in prison did smoke because they did everything to excess. I mean, they weren't really think, making wise choices. You know, I mean, the fact that you're in there shows that your decision making is not not that great. Uh, it's just perpetuated it inside. Uh, I, the government will never give more money. They're cutting down on staff mm -hmm. members. They're, believe it or not, if you go for a job in the prison service now, do you know there's not an interview? 
you know they've actually stopped the interviews? You all get a form, you all fill out the forms, and unless you've got a criminal record, you'll be accepted. You will then go to a nine-week training course. Nine weeks to teach you everything. Now, these are some people have just left university. Some people have been working in the supermarket. It's job security. You start off on 22 grand, which is a lot of money, really, and it's a job for life. But unfortunately, the people that they're recruiting are being bullied. They're being bullied. They're being groomed. Before, you had to hide your drug use because they had staffing numbers to go, come over and stop you and lock down the prison. They haven't got it anymore. People use drugs openly in prison now because you've got two members of staff for a whole wing. And some of these wings, you've got like... The, two members of staff will have to control a minimum a minimum of 100 men. So even if you two see me smoking a joint and I'm with four other people, mm. you've got to press the bell for everyone to shut down the other wings, for them to come over to stop me smoking a joint. Plus they're intimidated by them now. Back in the day, if I, if I crossed the line verbally, never mind physically, verbally, then you knew that, 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 that you couldn't get away with it. You couldn't get away with it. The staff wouldn't have it because they were ex-servicemen who knew how to handle men. Mm. Now they're, they're college graduates and uh, they're being bullied. They so, reduced the numbers so they, could, they, they, can't, they can't safely enforce any of the drug laws. So, so how, how would you, Ed, then? Like the same question mm -hmm. as John. I know it's a blooming old question, but you've been in, been in there as, um, as a convict. How would you change prison? I think I think you have to. I, I don't think there's a simple answer, but I think we have to change what we do with the men when they're in prison, and I think that should incorporate. They called it lived experience. Now there's a new fad, last two or three years. Uh, they called it lived experience, where they're actually recruiting people like me who've turned their lives around, and we then go on boards. I worked with Her Majesty's Prison Probation Services uh, uh, this year and stuff with stuff like that. Um, but that's it never it never relates to any difference within the prison system because in order to put in a different way of life um, you'd have to completely rechange re the, the the prison system and if they won't give you money for staff they're not going to give you money for programs that they see as mollycoddling they think people are in there to be punished so they should be locked up and then let out and that's it yeah. Actually, that, goes on to, that kind of goes on to a question that Andy's asked. I'll just bring that up if it's going to let me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he asks, how often does Ed get asked to go in to assist with working parties to help educate others about prison and the prevention of crime? Uh, well, just working on that, myself and John, we're in the process this year of setting stuff up for next year. So John already goes into prisons. Uh, me and John want to go in as a team in the future uh, and I, I, I can go into prison. So that's something we're looking forward to doing next year. I'm really looking forward to that because if you see somebody that's changed, it, I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a role model. I, I'm a warning. I'm not an example. I'm a warning. Um, but if then if people see that it's possible, like I read Chris Lambiano's book and I thought, wow, that man's done something special. And at the time, I didn't think that's what I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a blueprint for my life, but it was a blueprint. So, but now if, if you can do a two minute video, somebody says, Oh, look, that guy was in jail for 20 years. Now he's working within the prison community going into schools. Uh, it shows it can be done. That's what we need. We need positive role models to show that there is a way out. Me and Lee often say this about ourselves. We're not, we're not experts. We haven't got a PhDs. I can't, I can't even bloody spell PhD. Never ever get one. But, <laughs> but we are, um, but we're we are qualified. But we are experienced. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not experts, but we're experienced in a lot of stuff we talk about. And I feel like um, when you have people who have uh, been on the rocky road and they've. They've failed more times than they've won and they've had their problems. I'll listen to that than a bloke turned up in a suit who's regurgitating Sigmund Freud and uh, mm. Barack Obama. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you're just regurgitating some other clever bloke. Mm. But if a bloke walks in and goes, oh, 
I flamingo up more times than most people. That that's brilliant because I will listen to him and go, mm. yeah, you, you've dropped a bollock or two, but have you survived? Mm. How do you manage to put your socks on in the morning? That's the kind of bloke mm. I listen to because I can relate to him. Well, my, my dream is if, if I was going in visiting myself as a youngster in prison, I would say, listen, you're really good at art. I know you can't see a way out, but art is a way out. Mm. Education's a way out. Why don't you do some education uh, and encourage them to do education that helped me? I did the social sciences so I could better understand my conditioning and my upbringing and, and, and the roles that, that, that are forced upon us, really, by, the, by society. Uh, but that was it was too late f- for me to change my life from 15 onwards. But now if I caught somebody who was 15 or 16 getting into situations I was getting in, I would say, look, these are options for you. I go for art. I stick with art. So I would like to encourage people to use art to, to educate. Uh, be, do a graphic design course. Do the education while you're in prison. Um, get some qualifications uh, and encourage them to say, because then when you come out, you could go to college, you could get a grant, or I make videos, why don't you come with me? And 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 then have the support network to to feed these people into. I'm a musician, so yeah, yeah, any creative stuff is really my language. So I'd use that, but other people would use different mediums. For me, it's art and creative creative process. Because there's a career in it. Because there's not a lot of things you can do when you come out of prison and you be you've been a villain. You have to. That I, I soon realised that in order for me to carve a, a, a different life out for myself, I would talk about my past. But really, it's about my my stuff's not about my past. It's about the fifteen years since I've changed. So I refer to my past, but really, it's all about the last fifteen years and stuff I've done in order to put myself in this position. That's transferable for other people. Lee, have we had any more comments? Or, um, I brought more, Kevin. We have, and it's remarkable talk yourselves. And uh, it's, um, I mean, uh, John, you write a, a poetry, and I believe you've got one for us today, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not Shakespeare, though, so uh, you may like it or you may not, you know, but. Um, well, love it, yeah. John. <laughs> yeah. You see, what, what it comes down to, I think, is. Two words, really, in my brain that mean a lot to me, and that is trust and respect. I believe that in society generally, and certainly within the prison regime, unless you've got trust and respect of each other, in other words, the men have trust and respect of the staff and vice versa, the men trust and respect by the by the prison staff. And until that exists, so... What I do when I go into prison, really, I, I say to people that I'm bringing a little bit of the outside inside. But actually, all I'm doing is I'm generating friendships. Now, they're not friendships that are ever going to live for years and years, because when people leave prison, they don't know where I am and I don't know where they are. But we get to the stage where we're talking to each other. Now, if I think of my own upbringing, um, I love me dad to bits, but. I would no more have had a discussion with my dad about a prostate gland or any other illness for that matter than fly to the moon. It wouldn't happen. But nowadays I go into prison and I might start off a a session with the guy saying, all right, lads, how are you doing? How's your prostate? And they just laugh and we talk about it and things come out into the open. Now, now women are a lot better at this than men are. So I haven't been able to try this in a woman's prison because I've never been in one. But, um, At the end of the day, we need to talk. Social media helps us talk. Um, I'm midway through reading Andy Mullaney's book. And I've got to say, uh, this is another book that if I'd read it 30 years ago, would have changed my life. Now, I couldn't have read it 30 years ago because he hadn't written it. But here's a a book (laughs) that essentially says, look at your life through different eyes. Look at your eyes through the eyes of somebody who's playing a game and play the game to your advantage. It is a rather wonderful book. I don't mean to sell somebody a book, but um, nevertheless, those that have read it will understand what I'm getting at. So I just try and get this relationship going. So, yeah, we're going to do some stuff. What's the name of it again, John? John, what's the name of his book? book? Oh, goodness, you've asked for something now. Um, I I knew knew that. I think it's something like, it's something like, 
did nobody ever tell you it's just a game? Yeah. And it is the most wonderful book I've read. I'm not a great book reader, to be honest, but I'm three quarters of the way through it. And uh, I must say, I've known Andy for some while, and he's a friend, and I, I owe him great debts. So um, he helps me as much as he can. But you need that. You need your tribe around you. And, you know, nowadays I've got Ed. But, but this is going to sound a bit silly, really, but Ed would tell you that I motivate him dramatically, and that I am his reason for getting up, perhaps. I am the person that's encouraged him and guided him and worked with him purely because early part of this year, he wrote to me on LinkedIn and said, John, I'm into collaboration. Will you collaborate with me, please? And I thought, yeah, right. He's an interesting guy. And we've been doing it ever since. I also am motivated by him and, and him alone. I mean, he's just um, he just inspires me. What he's done with his life and, and what he is doing with his life is beyond compare in my world because I've never known anybody so well as I know Ed. And he uh, constantly surprises me. Anyway, today, um, this morning, we had a guy that was going to come on a Zoom call with me from a university. And about half an hour before he was due to come on, he dropped me a text to say, sorry, John, something's come up. Can we do it later in the week? Yeah, we certainly can. So I had a big gap in my morning. And I thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm going to write a bit of poetry. And um, I wrote some poetry, but I started off writing limericks. Now, <laughs> these are very tongue-in-cheek. And as I said, uh, I'm not Shakespeare. And I don't believe Shakespeare wrote limericks anyway, did he? But uh, here's a sample. Uh, hopefully, your listeners might get a smile from it. A man I once knew from my school who treated me just like a fool but I had the last laugh when I drew up a graph, which showed that now he isn't cool. <laughs> the second one for you, if you like this kind of thing. There once was a very fat man who lived on his own in a van. He slept all night, got a terrible fright when the van had a runaway plan. So, so there, there's a sample. Um, but I wrote some poetry as well. And, the great thing about poetry is you can say things um, with meaning and, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily say to people's uh, faces. So uh, I was watching BBC last night on the telly and um, on Newsnight, they had an interview with a woman who had been uh, sent to a ladies' prison, um, HMP style it was, um, and she didn't know that she was pregnant as she went into the prison. Indeed, she was asked the question on, on the first arrival there. Could you be pregnant? No, she said. Definitely not. Hey-ho, guess what happened? About eight months later, she suddenly gets stomach pains. And it went on from there. Eventually, she gave birth in her prison cell to a little girl. And the little girl was stillborn. Now, had she been in a hospital, they would have saved the baby. But the health care in the prison is not the same. And as a result, by the time the ambulance got there, the baby uh, was, it was not possible to resuscitate. And I thought this was a terrible situation. So I wrote a poem. I've never read it to anybody before, including Ed. I wrote this this morning, and I don't know whether it comes anywhere near um, talking about the subject, but for what it's worth, I'll read it to you. And I hope, uh, I hope it resounds with some people. Giving birth in prison, so much hell. Nobody with me, no mum to tell how I feel. And cannot just say why I now regret that night, that awful row. My partner, when he was around, showed no respect. And I found that if I moaned, he would strike me at least once or maybe three. When asked, what is that mark upon your arm? My answer simply, he meant no harm. The doctor said, are you okay? I answered, yeah, well, I am today. On arrival here, I met some mums who'd left their kids with their chums. And by the time that they got out, their children would always doubt, will mum be here for all our days or will she go again away? Now, my baby and I, we are a pair, but in prison, no one cares. This is no place to grow up. The thought of that makes me throw up i hope that has some message for some people 
the lady listeners. Hope it resounds with somebody. This is written by a man mm. who's obviously never been pregnant, never will be, never known anybody going to prison in those circumstances, taking my cue off of what I saw on the telly last night. But I've been in many prisons and spoken to many men, and I know that one thing they all have in common is they're human. They're like you and I. I don't go into prison and find people with a tattoo on their forehead, rapist or murderer or anything like that. They're just people, and they've made some wrong choices. And I find that talking to them, a bit of comedy, perhaps light-hearted, a bit of poetry, a bit of music, a bit of storytelling, whatever, touches them, and it helps. You know, I, I went into Stafford Prison for a very long time and on a regular basis. And I went into what they call the SSG, the Senior Support Group. And every time I went in there, there was the same group of perhaps 25 men who would listen to my stories and listen to my music. And essentially, it was an old man's club. All these people were over 65. They couldn't work. Obviously, they retired. Um, and there was one old boy sat there. Uh, and all I can tell you about him, he had a Scots accent. And every single time I went in, he sat there and for all the world, was oblivious to me. He never responded. He never spoke. He never looked my way. He just sat there, more or less comatose. And at the end of it all, he just got up and walked out. And then one month I went in and I played some music, which unbeknown to me was his favourite, and it touched him. And when all the other men had gone out, he held back and he came up to me and he simply said, thank you, John. That was very kind. I enjoyed that. And then off he went. For me, it was like winning the lottery. All these months I'd been trying to befriend him, to get a message to him, in the hope that he would change his ways. And I shall never know whether it's had any long-term effect on him because COVID arrived and I've not been back in since. But I'd wager a bet if I were a gambling man, if I went in there today, he'd still be there. He's a long-time resident of Stafford Prison. and. Uh, I expect he's still there, but who knows? But they're all human, and they're like you and me. They've just made some wrong choices. Uh, now, if you've enjoyed listening to John, uh, one of our guests who came on the other day, Kerry Davies, who is the ambassador for More Mascots, Please, and they are doing a do on the 12th of October at Indie Lux in Amblecote, where I'll be raising money for this wonderful charity where they raise money for disabled children, disadvantaged children, where they'll send them out mascots on their birthday. It's a wonderful, wonderful charity. Yeah, and John will be nice. the, he will be the compare. So please get in touch and you can find more details, I believe, on our Facebook, Lee. No, it's on the Kerry's. If you go to Kerry Davis. At, um, more mascots, please. BME or more mascots, please. CIC, you'll be able to find there. Um, but we will add a link onto the onto the end of this podcast as well. And you can even catch myself there. I'll be there supporting, and uh, you know we can have a let's have a shandy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. You know, Kerry is a special lady to me. Um, and if I would say this about Kerry, um, in, in the world in which we live, she has some disadvantages. She might see them as advantages, but they're actually physical disadvantages. She lives in a wheelchair. She has 24-7 care. She has a heart of gold. She was awarded the British Empire Medal and got given it by the Lef Lord Lieutenant the Wednesday before... Yeah, last Wednesday. Um, I come on, she's, well, yeah, she was yeah I know. She's been on. The restaurant in question is the Indie Lux in Amblecote. Um, yeah. And anybody can Google it and find out. It's one of the finest Indian restaurants around. Tickets are £20. And, yeah, I'm going to be standing up making myself look stupid. So if you want to come along <laughs> and say hello, that would be lovely. She has 60 covers to sell, 60 covers at £20 each, and I hope it's full to the gunnels. I hope it's amazing. I hope everyone's there. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, guys, thank you ever so much for coming on. And before we, before we end our show, um, as I always like to get people saying, any quotes or sayings? So, John, if we go over to you first, bro, any quotes, sayings, or advice that you'd give you to yourself or to someone else who's listening to this? If I wrote a letter 
to my younger self. <laughs> Again, a thing that Andy in his book tells you to do. If I wrote a letter to my younger self, it would be to listen more to what's going on around you and to question more. So when I left school, age 15, with no qualifications whatsoever, it was because nobody said to me, do you know what, John? You've got quite a brain on you. You should go to university. So I eventually graduated age 49. What a shame. All those years were missed. I would listen to people and take their advice. But who knows? At 15, perhaps I wasn't in that frame of mind. But a, a little motto, a stitch in time saves nine. In other words, if you get these people at the right stage of their life and give them the right advice, it will come right. That's the best I can do tonight. And Ed, same question. Uh, without risk, there's no change. Take a risk. Could change your life. Well, guys, once again, thank you very much for coming on. Okay. Sorry, if you want to You're catch uh, Kerry's episode as well, it's still on catch up until Thursday. So if you've gone to Black Country Radio app and, and look for Black Country Radio Extra, then catch up, you'll find it on there. Um, on this Thursday, we have John the ex Booze Hound on, uh, talking about his life of alcohol addiction. Next Tuesday, we have Wayne Lewis on, who's doing great things around Briley Hill. We're really looking forward to that. So, yeah, busy few weeks. And as always, we do, have, we do our support crews at the Lions ABC in Briley Hill every Wednesday evening, 7pm to 9pm. We haven't got a book in now, guys, so just come and meet some like-minded souls. No judgment, as I say, no experts, but we are experienced and just reaching out to help each other on. So, guys, until we see each other next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Tara God bless, lads. Thanks very much. Cheers now. Bye. Listen, listen, listen. And that's a wrap for another show. But if there are any comments or messages that you would like us to read out for our next podcast, please be in touch. There are also lots of different organisations at the bottom of this page and hopefully they can help you or someone you care about. Please share this to spread the word. Until we talk next time, tarot a bit. Listen, listen, listen.